I suggested to you last week that to cry is inherently human, but to lament is inherently Christian. Do you know what the difference is between crying and lamenting? Do you, do you know why lament is inherently Christian? And why if you're not a Christian, you can't lament in the way that I'm gonna talk about today. And I hope that you will be able to, but I wanna to explain to you why you can't lament. I spent a lot of time thinking about this over the last number of months. Here's the difference. Crying acknowledges the reality of pain. Something happens, we feel sad, we cry. It acknowledges the difficulty of a loss that we feel or the emotional trauma of something bad that happens. Crying is the outward expression of painful emotions. It's a, a normal, very natural human response to pain, to hurts, to disappointments. But lament is all of that because it includes crying and the kind of emotions related to what it means to mourn. But lament is different in that it does all of that with deeper meaning and with a different focus. Lament adds something underneath our crying and it adds something above our crying. What Christian lament does is it interprets pain. It, it, it identifies what's underneath and what is above. Christianity answers the question, why is there crying in the world? What's the cause? Where does crying come from? And the Bible answers that question by telling us that the cause of death, the cause of pain, the cause of tragedies, the cause of sorrow is sin in the world. My sin, your sin, our sin, the, the sin of the whole created order, that there's something fundamentally wrong with the world and that underneath our tears and the reason why we are crying is the fact that we live in a created order that is broken, that is flawed. So biblical lament then grapples not just with what has happened, but it grapples knowing that the bigger and ultimate problem in the world is not just my pain or this pain, but the reality of pain in the created order. Which is why Jesus is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He, more than any other human being who walked on earth, understood the depth of the problem embedded in his humanity and into our humanity. So beneath our crying is the reality of sin. Above our crying, in regards to Christian lament, is the fact that this is a sorrow. Christian lament is a sorrow that also has hope in it. You, you might think it ironic at first, but biblical lament requires faith in that it is a prayer and in that it calls out to God to do something to address our pain. Christian lament knows not only the cause of sorrow, but understands its solution, and in so doing, longs for the promised deliverance that God has said he one day will bring. So Christian lament mourns the reality of sin, it mourns the specific pain, and it mourns the fact that the final resolution has not yet come, which is why the psalmist says, how long, O Lord? Lament wrestles with the tension that God is good and yet bad things still happen. 
Lament struggles with the fact that the Bible tells us that one day there's gonna be no pain and no tears and no death. No more lament. And that day is not now. And Christians look at the world and say, why not now? Why not right now? So lament then, Christian lament, acknowledges the ultimate cause of suffering and the promised resolution, and Christians can truly lament because they understand what's underneath our pain, what's above our pain, they understand the full story of redemption, and while crying expresses pain over a particular instance in life, Christian lament interprets that pain and its trajectory In fact, it interprets that pain in light of the gospel, that Jesus came to earth to die in order to deal with the ultimate cause of our lament. And when he returns, there will be no more lamenting. And that's why if you're not a Christian today, I hope and pray that today you'll put your faith in Christ And it may be that God is using your pain to awaken you, not just to the problem that is in front of you, but the problem that's actually underneath you and the hope that is actually before you because of the person and work of Jesus. Today I aim to talk about the land of lament. I want to give you a landscape of why was the book of Lamentations written, and then we're gonna take a break, kind of, next week I'm gonna illustrate lament by virtue of talking about a couple subjects, namely the issues related to abortion and racism. Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I wanna talk about the value of being made in God's image, not only in respect to when a child is born, but also in regards to how we value one another in light of that image. Now last week we began this journey on the subject of lament. Let me review a couple things with you. A lament is a prayer. It gives voice and words to our pain and to our emotion that we feel in the midst of suffering. Lament wrestles with questions like, God, where are you? And if you love me, why is this happening? I've heard from a number of you this week that just even realizing that those questions, when asked in the right way, are not sinful. In fact, I would suggest to you, if you ask those questions, that's one thing. If you use them to accuse God, that's another. To accuse him, that's sinful. To simply ask him humbly and in pain, the Bible is full of those kind of questions. So in your lament, don't you dare accuse God, but don't you dare be silent either. Ask him. We talked last week of the fact that despair is often what happens in believer's life when they look at what has happened to them and they feel as though God hasn't answered their prayer, so they stop praying, they give up, they throw into despair, and lament then reopens the heart, reopens the mouth. It becomes both an act of worship and a means of leading us to worship, more worship. And what lament does is it helps us to stay out of two ditches. It helps us to stay out of the ditch of you owe me, And lament helps us to stay out of the ditch of it's over. So between the poles of you owe me and it's over, God has given us the language of lament to wrestle with why and how am I going to make it? 
So laments ask difficult and tough questions. And last week I asked you to think about that on a personal level. You see, we, we need to learn this language of lament, not only because it's in the Bible, but because there is, there is far more pain in the world than we realize, and for that matter, there's far more pain even among us than what we realize. So when you came and took those cards and brought them up, our staff prayed for those cards, and it was beautifully traumatic to read them. There's so much pain. Let me give you just a few examples of some of the things that were said. I've got a list of 18 here, and that's just a a fraction of the overall, and I'm just gonna read you about four or five. I've given up all hope, one person, that my relationship with my siblings and my extended family can be salvaged. Another one, I've been trapped in an eating disorder, the pain, the self-hatred that go with it for the past 15 years. Another one, I have chosen the path of sin and adultery. My sin disgusts me, yet I want it. I want to die. How long, O Lord, another person wrote, must I walk on this earth in singleness? You said it's not good for a man to be alone, and yet I, and many of my friends continue to long for the gift of marriage. Someone wrote, I can't even put it into words. I've been in a wilderness for 10 years. Another one, our daughter has two failed marriages. Our son won't even go to church. My husband can't attend church regularly. See, these are the laments that are underneath the surface of our church. This is the real world in which we live, and those are just the ones that were written down and the ones that were turned in. Just a a small fraction of the entire body. Oh, there is so much pain and so much difficulty in all of our lives. So we need to learn this language at an individual level. I aim today to add another category to this concept of lament. Without detracting at all from the need for personal lament, I want you to keep growing in that arena. I want to add another category, and it is the category of community lament. You see, I think this is important because I don't think lament is very familiar, and I think community lament is even less familiar to us. And the reason is, is because I think there's a particular lens through which most of us naturally view suffering. And that lens is informed by our human nature and by our Western American culture, both of which conspire in order to have us view the issue of suffering as merely individual. I think because of our innate self-focus, which is just a part of our humanity, we all have to work against that, and because of our sort of rugged individualism of our Western culture, like, like it's about me and my world and my dream, et cetera, et cetera, that when suffering comes, we tend to over-individualize it. Again, I'm not saying that that is fundamentally wrong, but I am saying that there's a gravitational pull in our culture because of who we are and because of where we live that limits our understanding of lament to only individual suffering, only individual lament, and I want to pull back, and I want you to see a broader category that's all over the book of Psalms and is primarily the intention of the book of Lamentations in order so that your ear might be tuned to hear the lament that should be said in regards to our culture or in regards to our city or in regards to our nation 
nation or the people that are around us. And I would suggest that many of us have ears that have been unintentionally closed to that lament. This manifests itself, for example, when people are trying to help others who are in their sorrow, one of the things that they can easily, and I've seen it happen so often, they can so easily do, is while this person is telling their story of their sorrow, you jump in and say, oh yeah, well let me tell you what happened to me. (laughs) And we start telling our story. I've been at funeral homes and funeral visiting lines as they're going through comforting a family and the poor family who's grieving stands there listening to everyone else's pain. How does that happen? Happens all the time. Because when we think of pain, we think about us. It happens when a person or a group of people are suffering in your community, in your city, in your nation, in your neighborhood, and you feel no lament for them because it doesn't affect you directly. And you look at them and you think, why don't you just get over it? Or you feel no compassion for what they're wrestling through. It shows itself at a personal or a national or a citywide perspective and you can be tempted or even annoyed with the fact that this group of people are suffering and hurting and because you weren't either involved in it or because it doesn't affect you, you can look at that and be like, that's their issue and there's no sense of what it means to lament. Or you could be an innocent bystander and because of no fault of your own, your family has been negatively impacted or maybe your neighborhood or your city or who knows what, but some group of people and you can be annoyed and frustrated that great, because of these people or because of this situation, now my life has been affected and rather than mourning the collective reality of that brokenness, all you can think about is how it's affected you. So I want you to think about personal lament, but I also want you to think about community lament. Personal lament cries out to God for our own sinfulness, cries out to God when people have sinned against us. Personal lament is when we cry out to God because of the way in which we've seen the wicked win the day. But there are a significant number of psalms that are written and statements in the scripture about what happens to an entire group of people what happens to a large number of people, and when that happens, they lament not only what it means to them, but also what it means to all of us. So I just want you to think a little broadly about the subject of lament, not just what you appropriately put down on that card or thought about this last week, but I want you to read the newspaper differently today. I want you to watch the news differently. I want you to see a Twitter feed differently. Let me give you an example or two. Take your Bible, go to Psalm 44. Psalm 44, verses 10 to 14. Here's an example of a community lament. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who have gotten spoiled. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. 
What he's lamenting there is what God has not done on behalf of his people. And then take your Bible, go to Psalm 60 and verse 1. He says, O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open, repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. Those are just two little examples. I can give you many, many more. What is a communal lament? A communal lament gives voice to the suffering, not just of the individual, but gives voice to the suffering of an entire people. These laments express then the sorrow of what is happening to culture, what's happening to a city, what's happening to the nation, what's, what's happening to a family. And they, they wrestle with the same kind of questions that an individual lament wrestles with, but the context is much broader. When the, when the hardship is widespread, when the sinfulness is institutionalized, when the discipline becomes national, These are prayers that are offered to God, a cry to God for help, and they serve in the record of biblical history as a wake-up call to the present generation and for future generations to come, that there are seasons when the bottom drops out and there are innocent people who are a part of that decayed culture, and what do those people say when the culture gives way? Listen, I think we need to understand this language because our culture is decaying. In the midst of all of the good and right things that can be done to try and change culture and preserve some semblance of Christianity in the midst of a culture that's lost its way, I also wanna add this other category that how do you deal with the loss of that when it doesn't work? Because I see some believers who get angry. Some believers who get cynical, some who get snarky, some who begin to assign blame and do things that I think, that's not gonna work for the gospel. I think the book of Lamentations helps us to know, what do we say when we look around and we just go, the bottom is about ready to give. So as we study the book of Lamentations and the subject of lament, I want you to consider what it means for you to lament personally. I'm not removing that category. I'm adding another one. I want to expand your vision and understanding what it means to be a part of a community that is lamenting. So, for instance, are there laments that we should be praying on behalf of our culture that we're simply not praying? What emotions and what prayers should flow from your heart when the economy tanks or our culture or our security falls apart? What kind of prayers should we pray when we When you see leaders that are ungodly or unrighteousness that seems to reign, what do you pray? What should you pray when you watch the news news or read the newspaper or get a disturbing report? Is there anything that we should be lamenting? So to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. Anybody can be angry. That's normal human behavior, but only a Christian can really lament. Only a Christian can interpret the pain and what's underneath it and also set it in the context of the story of the gospel. And so for some of you, I hope that today creates a new category, and when you 
encounter the problems and the brokenness of the world when you see it around you, that you won't just be annoyed that it's there. Great, another person did this, that instead you can pull back, and instead of being angry and, or despairing, that you could begin to lament, and in your soul or in your words begin to say, how long, Jesus, until you come? And maybe that language will help you live without saying, you owe me, or it's over. And I think that's what the book of Lamentations does for us. Now what's behind the scenes with the book of Lamentations? Behind this book is the story of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and for that matter, the nation of Israel. Let me set the scene for you so you can understand what's happening in this book. After the reigns of David and Solomon, these were known as the golden years in Israel's history, the nation was divided into two kingdoms. There was 10 tribes called the Northern Kingdom, and there were two tribes in the Southern Kingdom. The Northern tribes were generally more ungodly, and as a result, in 722 BC, Assyria came in and took them captivity. It should have been a warning to the Southern tribes, but it wasn't. Instead, Judea, or Judah, experienced the same kind of divine discipline. Now in 2 Chronicles 36, there are a number of kings that are mentioned. There's five of them. Let me review them quickly. Josiah is mentioned. He was the last godly king in Israel's history. Under his leadership, there was phenomenal reform and there was spiritual vitality. And after his death, everything began to unravel. It unraveled politically, it unraveled spiritually, it unraveled sociologically, it unraveled morally. In less than 30 years after Josiah's death, the nation was gone. 30 years, gone. During this time, the ancient Near East was in turmoil. Assyria was the major superpower. Babylon was beginning its ascendancy. And eventually, Babylon attacked Syria it sacked the capital city of Nineveh in 612, and in 609, Babylon conquered the entire nation of Assyria and began assimilating their properties and nations into the Babylonian Empire. Judah is caught in the middle of this. The next king listed in 2 Chronicles 36 is Jehoahaz. He reigns for only three months, like all the other, many of the other kings. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. As a result, God sends Egypt took him captive, made him a prisoner, and laid tribute on the land of Judah. And as a result, his brother was made king of Judah, and his name was changed to Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, same song, second verse. He's as wicked as the other kings. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If you want to read an interesting account, read Jeremiah 25 to 26. It says that Jehoiakim led the people into further idolatry. He refused to listen to God's word, and he persecuted the prophets. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar comes up, the great king of Babylon. He takes Judah, makes, him his, makes Judah as a country his vassal. He takes Jehoiakim to Babylon as his prisoner. It's during this time that Daniel and his three friends are deported to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar began raiding the temple of some of its treasures. The next king is Jehoiachin. He did what was evil in sight of the Lord. He was only on the throne for about three months. He abdicated the throne after Babylon again marched to Jerusalem, set up a siege, 
And upon his surrender, the Babylonians raided the temple, raided the palace, carried off all of the officials, all the mighty men of valor, all the craftsmen, according to 2 Kings 24. In other words, the Babylonians decapitated the leadership capital of the nation, and Ezekiel was part of this deportation. All that was left in the land at this time were the poorest, and Nebuchadnezzar put Zedekiah on the throne to rule over this pale semblance of a nation. Zedekiah reigns for 11 years, and he follows the pattern of previous kings in terms of his wickedness and evil. However, under Zedekiah, the evil reached its zenith. And as a result, God sent the Babylonians one more time. Look at 2 Chronicles 11, or 2 Chronicles 36, 11, and take note of the description of the pride of his heart, the spiritual pollution in the land. Verse 11, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against, the, against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart, turning against the Lord God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful. Notice that. It's not just the king. It's the king. It's the priests. It's all of the people. They're all unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. They polluted the house of the Lord that he made holy in Jerusalem. Verse 15, the Lord God of their fathers sent persistently to them his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his word, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, and here's a scary statement, until there was no remedy. The effect, verse 17, there's an important word, therefore. Therefore, God sends the Chaldeans. It's not just that they come, it's that God sent them. God sent them as a means of judgment on his own people. Verse 17, they killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. They had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. So he takes everything, all the gold that Solomon put in the temple, the beauty, the glory of this beautiful place that was made for God to come and dwell. And he did, in beautiful demonstration of his grace, he lived and came and dwelt among his people and now Nebuchadnezzar stripped it all bare, verse 19, and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. Verse 20, he took into exile in Babylon those who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. In other words, the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of Judah was now complete. After a three-year siege, of the city of Jerusalem that nearly starved the people to death. A breach was made in the wall. The Babylonian army marched into Jerusalem. They sacked the temple. They tore down the walls. And this city of David that was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, this place where God's glory was supposed to dwell, where people would come from all over the world to see and experience the beauty of who and what God is, is decimated. It's burned. And the chosen people of God are now either dead, displaced, or destitute. The rebellion of God's people had brought this upon them. 
Now go to Lamentations 1. All of that is the background for what we read in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations 1 in verse 2. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who is great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. That's what is behind the book of Lamentations, the smoldering ruins of the city of Jerusalem. And what's more, the person writing these words, I think, is the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet who was known as the weeping prophet. He, he wrote in Jeremiah 9, 1, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah had a very difficult ministry. We only know of two converts that he had. God commanded him not to marry, and his own people plotted to kill him. And Jeremiah continually throughout this is the glorious book that bears his name, calls for God's people to repent. He calls for them to renew their commitment to their, their, their king and their God, and they failed to repent. And so this smoldering city is because of the hard-heartedness of the people, and this is exactly what Jeremiah had warned about. Just read Jeremiah 21 to 29, you'll see all of the warnings that he issues to them. And so what does he do? What would you do? You know what I'd be tempted to do? I'd be tempted to walk away from the city and say to everybody, I told you so. I told you, why didn't you listen to me? My house is on fire. The whole city, like this vision of what dream we were gonna have together, it's gone because you people, you sinful, wicked, stupid people, why didn't you change? And you know what instead he does? He says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. What we have in Lamentations is a beautiful example of how do you deal with tragedy that has happened on a grand scale. And so Lamentations is appropriately dark, but it's not self-centered, it's not sinful, and it's also embedded with hope. And what I want to add into your life this morning, what I hope God does is he creates a category that when the bottom falls out, not just in your life, but maybe in your family, and you're tempted to look at the people who caused the chaos in your family, and when you're tempted to go, what's wrong with you people? Why are you like this? You're ruining my life. You're making things all miserable and difficult. Why can't you just do this? And why can't you be like this? And you look at all these circumstances, or you look at the things in the city, or you look on the, on the news, and you think, why can't those people be different? And you have all these things that are rumbling around in your soul. And instead of going there because of the brokenness of the world, like so many people go to, I want you to be able to interpret that brokenness because of what you know about the reality of sin and the hope that we have in the gospel. And I want you to lament not just your own brokenness, I want you to lament the brokenness of the world in order so that people can see the beautiful reality of what the gospel has done for you. We need Christians who know the language 
of lament. When the next national crisis comes and everyone in your office is talking about how bad the world is, you cannot keep your mouth quiet. You can't, you have to speak into that. But what you say better be right. It better not be angry like everybody else in the culture or somehow way over the top in terms of your proposed solutions. Instead, the book of Lamentations gives us a land to live between you owe me or you did this and it's over. So, as we consider this category, let me just make some observations and give you some things to think about as it relates to how to live in the land of lament and what are some lessons that we need to think about. Here's the first one, and it's this. The Bible tells us that sin has affected everything. I know that you know about your own sin, and I know you know about the sin of others, but my question is, do you have an appreciation for the problem of sin and what it's done to the globe? what it's done to culture, what it's done to relationships, what it's done to how we talk, what it's done to every environment related to who we are as human beings. I mean, there's coming a day when the glory of God will cover the earth like the water covers the sea, and what's wrong with the world is that day is not now. When you open the newspaper and you see the problems that are in the world and you see the horrific things, and you like me have probably thought, I'm turning this off, I can't watch this anymore, this is awful. Is that all you think? Or do you have an ear tuned to think, oh, sin is so big and intrusive and invasive. Do you have a category to realize that the Bible says that God is holy and that mankind's greatest problem is that we have all fallen short of God's glory, even so that the entire created order, according to Romans 8, groans under the brokenness of the weight of sin. And my question is, do you hear that groaning? Do you see it in the mall? When you see conflicts that are happening with people, when you hear about someone who got in a fight last night at a bar, is in the hospital with a head injury, do you see that as, well, he shouldn't have been out that late and probably got in a fight? And, or do you think, there's something wrong with the world. A Christian understands that underneath every problem in life is the reality of sin. And you know what that also means? It means that no matter how hard you try, you can't solve that ultimate problem. God's placed some of you in really wonderful positions in, in your family or in your workplace, or in the community, and the reality is you ought to work as hard as you can to bring the light of the gospel and to bring justice in the environments in which you live. But the fact of the matter is sin is so big and so epidemic and so inculcated into who and what we are that only Jesus himself can solve that problem. So you've got to work hard, but in your working, you ought to cry out and say, God, I cannot fix this on my own. Can't root out the sin in my kids. I can't root out the sin in my family. I can't root out the sin in our city. I can't root out the sin in our nation. Only Christ can come when he sets his feet on earth and says, this world belongs to me, and then banishes the devil and sin and death and all despair. (laughs) 
Through the death of Jesus, God made it possible for sin to be forgiven and dealt with. That's why today I want you to become a follower of Jesus. If you're not, I want you to realize that your ultimate problem is not just the pain, it's the sin, the brokenness that's underneath you. It's underneath all of us. And the beautiful hope of the gospel is that Christ came to deal with that problem and eventually to restore everything that's right. And so Christians lament because they know the problem under the problem and they know the problem above the problem. And that's why I think Christians ought to lament because we of all people on earth understand the issue of pain. Sin has affected everything. Here's the second thing. Our sin and our suffering is not the only problem. I've already made this point, but let me just repeat it. We tend to over-individualize our suffering, and my encouragement to you would be lament what's going on in your life. Just be careful that in that lament you don't become self-focused. Use that lament in your own life to then think of the lament that you need to embrace in the context of other people. I hope and pray that you'll start praying lament-oriented prayers for your own heart. It will help you. My goodness, this helped me this week. I had a situation come up and instantly it just made me angry. I was frustrated, I'm like, ah, again? And I wanted to go to a particular part of my heart that I go to way too many times where I commiserate, why is this happening to me? Why is this taking place? Why are they like this, et cetera, et cetera. And you know what, instead, instead, because of this topic, I lamented and it helped my soul. It reoriented my heart from this is annoying and I'm frustrated to God, this is really a bigger problem and I can't fix it, you gotta help me. And I gotta fix it in some way, in this little small way, and I need you to empower me to know what to do and what to say, because I don't know what to do. And I lamented, and it helped reorient my heart didn't stuff it, but I didn't do what I wanted to do. I'm praying that God will not only do that for you individually, I'm praying that you'll do that so that you'll see what's wrong with your neighborhood. You begin to look at your responsibility in our city and in our state and in our nation and to realize, look, there's not just something wrong with me, there's something wrong with all of us and there's something wrong with all of us together and that we won't just pray about our own suffering, but we'll, we'll lament to the Lord about what's happening around us. Third, what lament does is it turns the heart toward worship. At the same time, it awakens slumbering hearts. So last week I said that lament is the bridge between your pain and praise. It is, it's, it's how a painful heart tunes itself to sing God's song. Lament is how we reorient ourselves away from anger, from frustration, from despair. Lament starts us on a faith-filled path of worship. It does this at a personal level, but it also does this at a corporate level. So when the bottom drops out on your vision of what your family was gonna be like, when the bottom drops out of your vision of what your culture was gonna be like or what it used to be like or your vision of what our city was gonna be like or what our nation is gonna be like, where do you go? And instead of reacting with apathy, well, who cares? Or fear, uh, what's gonna happen? Or anger or despair? This means that the followers of Jesus can look at the collapsing realities around us and we can 
Instead of act as though we're beholden to our culture, we can know what the long arc of human history is and talk to the Lord about it and use this beautiful language of lament. We should do what Jeremiah did with the fall of Jerusalem. We should use lament to draw out of us our hopes for a broken world and allow us to be reminded of the bigger picture of God. And when we hear the laments of other people, like next Sunday, we're going to talk about the lament of what's happening to unborn children. And my fear is that we become so accustomed with the reality of abortion in our culture that we've almost lost the language of lament over millions and millions of unborn children who have been murdered. We don't lament it anymore. Or the division among us regarding our skin color. We can act as though that's not a big deal anymore because we weren't a part of the things that created some of the tensions and the frustrations that exist. And we can treat that issue as if that's not a big deal. That was years and years and years ago. Or we can make that issue everything. And as a result, we no longer lament what it's like to be a victim of that or to be a person who doesn't understand what it's like to be a victim of that. And as a result, we have lost the language of lament because we just simply don't want to understand What lament does is it gives you compassion. It awakens your heart to feel things that you wouldn't have felt. What's more, it opens the door for evangelism. When the bottom drops out, if you lament well and use the biblical language of lament, it will create opportunities for you to point people to Jesus and remind them the problem isn't this. There's something underneath it and there's something beyond it and nobody else on the earth can interpret that pain like a follower of Jesus. And I'm telling you, when crisis comes, oh church, lament well for the sake of the evangelistic opportunity that exists. And it also calls us to action, that if we lament, you might be surprised what God invites you to do. In the midst of your pouring out your heart to him, he may very well call you to do something that you would have never thought to do, because suddenly the heart has been awakened. What does lament do? What does corporate lament do? It it turns our hearts Godward as we are reminded in a minor key that corporately and individually, we need God's mercy. Do you know that you need God's mercy today? Do you know that our nation needs God's mercy? Lament reminds us that the problem in the world is sin, and God is the only one who can bring a solution to that problem. And that is why to cry is human but to lament is Christian. Father, help us to simply tune our ears this week to what is happening around us. Forgive us for the ways that we fail to enter into the compassion of what other people are walking through or the problems and challenges of our world. And in the midst of all the good things that we would do, in the midst of all of the things that we would try, would you also humble us and remind us again that unless you intervene, unless 
you move, this ultimate problem of sin in the world will never fully be dealt with. And so we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Give us grace, O Lord, to be a people who have beautiful, joyful optimism about what it is that you can do, but also who understand gravely the problem of sin in the world. Help us to live in both categories and make us a people who are passionate followers of you because we know the problem and we know the solution and we know how to interpret pain. Now, Lord, send us out into the world and help us to hear the lament and to interpret it in light of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.